Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome into the inaugural episode of the podcast by Order of the Peaky Blinders. I'm Daniel Gilman, joined by my friend Josh Levy, here to give you your heart's fill and more of the most underrated show on TV available on Netflix and BBC. Now, I got into this show a few years ago by repeated recommendation of my college roommate. I watched it all in about a weekend. So whether you're just starting Peaky Blinders or have seen it 20 times, welcome, 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 welcome. We're so excited that you've uh, joined us on this journey. Josh and I have been talking about this for a while. Now, Josh here will represent all the newcomers out there. He just started the show. It took me a little bit convincing, but I got him to get in. And Josh, if I could speak for you, after one episode, you were hooked. Could not be happier that you recommended this show to me. I think about three minutes into the episode after the first scene, which we're about to break down, I was hooked right from the start. We'll be breaking down each and every episode without spoilers. So if you're just starting like Josh is, he hasn't even gotten through season one. Don't worry, we're not going to spoil anything for you. We start in this episode with season one, episode one, which really creatively is titled episode one. So you can be as prepared as possible when season five comes around on BBC at the end of August or expecting early October on Netflix. If fans want, they can let their voices be heard. We want to hear all of you peaky heads and all of your opinions. We aren't communists like Freddie. We like feedback, with or without spoilers, and we'll add it to the end of every episode. Just email us at bootpeakyblinders at gmail.com. You can find that on Facebook at facebook.com slash peakypodcast or on Twitter at byorderofpeaky. Let's dive right in. Peaky Blinders was created by Stephen Knight, who was a writer for a few movies, including an Oscar nominee, Eastern Promises, had the same main character, Viggo Mortensen, as Green Book, he was nominated for that this past year, so you might have recognized that. So now as we look at this, a lot of times the description of the show might spoil things, but it was funny to hear what the creator of this incredible world had to say. Stephen Knight went on to a podcast on BBC a few years ago, and he described it as this. A story of a family in the 1920s Birmingham, England, of illegal bookmakers, racketeers, and sometimes gangsters, about the progression of the family from humble beginnings to making it and getting out of that environment, if it's even possible. So what's cool here, Josh, is that incredibly it's based on stories told by Stephen Knight's parents who grew up in that time in that part of the city. He talked about how pubs are bigger, horses and women are a little bit more beautiful to give it that mythological feel. And if it's from that perspective of a 10-year-old's memory, that's kind of why it feels like we want to be in that world so badly. So let's jump right into this opening scene, Josh. Epic music starts to build. We see this horse walking down a street. It's somewhere in an Asian town. People are scurrying around. You can't really tell if it's snowing or what. And then this clean-cut guy in an unbelievably expensive suit without a saddle comes riding this horse. What are you thinking? I mean, first of all, I just want to say this is eerily similar to Lil Nas X riding through on horseback. Just, just want to put that on the side because it's very, very similar. Pretty awesome. We see Tommy riding on horseback. At that time, we don't really know who it is, but you know it's somebody. You know it's somebody important. And this just sets the tone for the show right out the gate, and it couldn't be a, a, a more perfect fitting beginning to the show. Yeah, Josh talking about Old Town Road there. And I'm going to be honest, I had no idea what was going on here, so I probably rewatched this scene 10 times the first time I saw it. I didn't know what Peaky Blinders was about when I first saw it. I didn't have a little trailer for me. I jumped right into it. 
And I remember rewinding to hear what the little kid said the first time. It turns out that Thomas Shelby was going to run the powder trick here to convince all of the commoners on that street that his horse Monahan boy would win in Kempton on Monday and that they couldn't tell anyone else. So Tommy wanted them to bet on this horse, not telling anyone else, and then we'll see what happens. Then that seductive tune kicks in and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds' red right hand begins our intro music that introduces us to the world that Stephen Knight has brought us to. The dirty and ash-filled yet somewhat familiar downtown area, and Josh, a place that you know only the hardened souls can thrive in. It's Birmingham, England in 1919. We're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of that opening scene now. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful opening scene. You have a mixture of very mystical feels with the power trick with the horse, and then right away you get that intro and that theme song, and it, it just really hits you, and you know you're about to saddle a strap in and hop on the saddle to ride along with Tommy Shelby. And as you said, that somewhat familiar downtown area, there's a lot of lot of views of that downtown area amongst that ash. And it's just a very picturesque intro into the show. Four or five minutes in, and we get introduced to the bookie headquarters. For those of you that are familiar with sports betting, what they'll do is they'll take bets on all the horse races, and they'll get updated odds through the little tickers. Take the bets. They'll make a lot of money. We meet Arthur, the oldest brother of the Shelbys and immediately identify this power struggle that we have here between Tommy and Arthur because it, it's not 100% clear, but it doesn't look like there's any father here around. So one of these two is going to be the leader of this group. We just don't know which one right away. And almost immediately, it looks like there's going to be a little conversation here about who's going to be in charge. Yeah, definitely. Right, right away as a newcomer watching the show. You think Arthur looks older and he's kind of, you know, the, the, the patriarch of the family. You don't think he's the father, but you, but you definitely know out the gate there's not a father there. And you kind of think that Arthur is the guy that's going to be leading the family. And you don't really know that Tommy's the guy that's going to be leading the family. So right away, Arthur, you know, kind of, kind of has a look at Tommy and you kind of identify that power struggle. Arthur gets upset that Tommy ran that powder trick because that means that he's going to be fixing a race, whether it's right now or down the road. And, oh boy, Billy Kimber. Billy Kimber. Is in charge of fixing races. So right away, six minutes in, Billy Kimber. And Tommy has already created the first of what would be many, many storylines for our lovable Shelby crew just in this first episode. But Billy doesn't scare Tommy for a second. And then Arthur has to mention two more, basically, villains that have popped out in the, in the first six minutes because we know there's news from Belfast. Trouble is coming. And then also the fact that Tommy just vultured into the Chinese territory and clearly someone else owns that territory. So it cuts straight onto a train, probably headed towards Birmingham. We do find out it is. And we learn about Tommy and Arthur's accolades as soldiers as the Honorable Inspector Campbell reads their files on a train, Josh. Yeah, right away, you know, Inspector Campbell pops right into the picture and he has a very stern, serious look on his face. And all of a sudden you're like, well... This guy's important. This guy's this guy means business. Staring at two very retro-looking uh, war photos of Tommy and his brother, and right away you see what Tommy's got under his belt. So I took a picture of what each of the files say, and the first one is Arthur Shelby. He lives at six Watery Lane, Small Heath. So Small Heath is the section of Birmingham. It lists Tommy and Arthur as gangsters, racketeers, and illegal bookmakers. It has Arthur as the leader of the Peaky Blinders. And then in that area on Tommy, it says, Honored with the King's Medal for Gallantry, which obviously we'll learn about more. 
But those are the, the baselines for our two introducing characters. And then we get introduced right away to a new character as we cut the scene to steel mill workers getting a little agitated as there's some turmoil there. People are not happy. There's a communist leading that group known as Freddie Thorne, riling them all up. Freddie, with the worst haircut in the entire show, then has the balls to take Tommy's Bob to pay for his drink at the garrison. Bob is the nickname for an old shilling coin that they used. The garrison is the, uh, the bar that a lot of these scenes will take place in. And then we're informed, just 12 bloody minutes into the freaking pilot of another major storyline, and it involves someone of historic reality. So now we get a little bit of realism thrown into this fictional drama. It involves Winston Churchill and this robbery that we later find out Mr. Shelby happened upon, and a list that includes Tommy and Freddie's names on it as suspects of this robbery. Yeah, right away, you know, I really loved how the show combined that mystical aspect right out the gate and then introduced Winston Churchill. Just a, a reaction right away when I saw it. I was like ready for this show to actually jump into real time so you can start understanding the timeline a little bit and the historical significance. So right away, they don't need to explain exactly what's going on. You kind of have to do your own homework a little bit and understand what's going on with the historical significance. And right now, Winston Churchill is the Secretary of State. So it was before, you know, he really came into power. So here it's, uh, it's, it's nice to, to, get, to get that introduction because you kind of know what Tommy's going to have to deal with down the road. And I love your observation there, Freddie having the worst haircut in the entire show. I mean, we, we, got, we got to talk to our man's Freddie about that haircut. I mean, just kind of just chopping down the sides and leaving the top, letting it go. Yeah, I mean, everyone kind of has that undercut, but for some reason, I'll tell you right now, right when I saw this show, I got a similar haircut to Tommy because that's exactly what I wanted it to look like. I wanted it to look anything other than what Freddie Thorne's hair was showing. Tommy's got it right. Tommy, you know, has the nice fade into the side, but Freddie is just letting that top go and just, just buzzing the side down. I'm not with it, but, you know, we'll see that someone else is with it in a little bit. So with this robbery... Obviously, Freddie's a little bit concerned because the two of them are on the same list, and Tommy gives a great line. He remarks that it's a list of men who give false hope to the poor, except according to Tommy, every once in a while, at least his horse wins. So it's clear that there's some bad blood there. I'm not 100% sure what's going on with their history. But soon, almost 10 seconds later, we get revealed that Freddie saved Tommy's life in France. So Freddie and Tommy obviously serve together, and right away, we get a little bit more of that realism that history thrown in because we don't have to do too much research to learn that World War I had ended very recently. It's still deeply ingrained in these guys' brains because oh, poor Danny comes running into the garrison screaming, they're going to get me, they're going to get me over and over again. And Josh, this Danny scene was hard to watch because Tommy's trying to reassure this poor bloke that they aren't in France anymore. They're in England. The world, the war is over. I mean, it just—it had just ended, what, a year before that, 1917, 1918. So the fact that the Peaky Blinders are in control and Garrison is learned here, and we also find out that PTSD is very, uh, very evident among some of these veterans. You could tell what Stephen Knight's really trying to do right out the gate, set the tone, set the historical precedence, and right out, this is, a, this is a tough scene to watch as Danny is just not with it, Keeps on referring back to being in France, very, very frazzled. And Tommy's got to get up in his face and kind of shake him and be like, "Danny, we're not, we're not, we're not there. We're in, we're in Birmingham." And it's just a very powerful scene, and you can kind of, you can kind of also see what kind of man Tommy is there. 
as you know, he has that rough side and he's intimidating, but, but Tommy's for the people of Birmingham as well. And that, that's something really important to point out here. Then we meet Polly, instantly a crowd favorite. Love Polly because her first scene on this show has her pointing a gun at her nephew, John, and trying to teach him a lesson for leaving the pistol around, especially with his four kids running around with no wife, Polly, the aunt of, all right, guys, a little bit of a, of a family lesson now, just for those that are a little lost. Polly is the aunt of John, Tommy, Finn, Arthur, and Ada. We haven't met Ada yet. We haven't really seen Finn. We saw Finn a little bit with that conversation with Tommy, with him smoking that cigarette. And then, Josh, I Googled the Peaky Blinders family tree. And uh, listeners, fans of this phenomenal show, I do not recommend Googling the family tree for the Shelbys. It is confusing. There's a lot of people in there. There's a lot of loose ends. There's a lot of question marks. And especially if you look at it when you're not 100% sober like I might have, my mind was racing at unknown speeds. And obviously, this should go without saying, if you're not totally caught up, don't Google the family tree. Don't Google anything at all about the show. We're spoiler free, but the internet is spoiler filled. But I'm confident that I can tell you that to oldest to youngest in the Shelby clan, is Arthur, Tommy, John, Ada, and then little Finn. Then we find out that Belfast is sending mass amounts of troops to control Birmingham. Birmingham! Thanks to a buddy of Arthur's overhearing some Irish coppa. Coppa. And Tommy knew about this, but so a little bit more of a power struggle here, Josh, because Tommy knew, but Tommy didn't tell Arthur, Tommy didn't tell Polly, and Arthur's not too thrilled about that. Yeah, you know, right right away we see another power struggle here between Arthur and Tommy. And you kind of see that Arthur, you know, really doesn't have it yet to stand up to Tommy. And as I said in the beginning, you kind of think that Arthur is, you know, he's, he's, he's older, he's going to have the power, but Tommy does not take anything from anybody. And you can kind of get that out the gate without him even doing anything. Yeah, I think there's a clear distinction that brains over brawn here because Arthur could probably beat him up in a fight. It would be a good fight. Too brash, really, you know, quick to pull the trigger a little bit. You know, Tommy's the more even keeled out of anybody, it seems, from this point. So it's going to be interesting to see how that power struggle plays out. And then a really notable part of this conversation, one of my favorite lines of this opening episode, Polly asks Tommy if he had anything else to say because Tommy wasn't really bringing too much to this family meeting. Tommy goes, nothing that's woman's business. And immediately we get one of many, many golden lines as Polly responds, this whole bloody enterprise was woman's business while you boys were away at war. What do you get from that? Right away, I'm like, on pole, don't play no shit. On pole is there, she means business, and she is just as much as a man as any, of, any one of these Shelbys are. And you could tell, once again, historical precedents without having to really deep dive into, into to what happened before, but you can tell she really kept that family and that business in line while they were all out at war. So, you know, she really knows what she's doing and she's not going to take anyone from anyone. So anything from anyone. So, you know, on pole is there on pole is very, very strong. Yeah. They never really dive into this, especially in this opening episode. So we just have to kind of guess at what point did these Shelby's come back from war? You know, maybe it was a year ago. Maybe it was two years ago. How long have they been trying to revive this business and who besides Aunt Polly had been really taken over because we only really meet Polly and Ada in terms of the women that surround these Shelby men in this opening episode until we meet one other, but we're not getting there yet. First, we get to see the arrival to Birmingham for Inspector Chester Campbell, and it was quite spiritual. 
the same inspector that Tommy was just referring to in this past family meeting. So Tommy had heard about this inspector coming to town. We see and get introduced to the walking town priest who keeps spurting out different scriptures saying that judgment is coming. Quote, you cannot hide from the creator. You cannot hide from the almighty himself as Campbell arrives in a coach. It's very foreshadowing. It's very on point with the, uh, with the principalism there. And uh, even the driver, Josh, won't go deep into small heat because he drops him off. He drops the inspector off and he says, that's it. I won't go further. So it's obvious that there's not a real police presence in the inside town of small heat that the Shelby's run. Right. And then this is more of just, you know, filling in the filling in the lines your own. And it just, I mean, not to be a dead horse, but it really goes back to the beginning and Stephen Knight kind of setting the tone out the gate. There's a lot of metaphorical significance going on here. You know, people know how dangerous this area is and how this family, you know, operates this town. And it's kind of implied here. And so I really like how, how Knight kind of eases that in, but sets the tone. We're not even, you know, we're, we're 15, we're 10, 15 minutes into the episode. And we, we, we've already learned so much. So just phenomenal job by Stephen Knight in the show. And now we get to learn about this robbery because in a scene with Polly and Tommy in the church, Tommy admits that he had a buyer in London for motorcycles and that apparently his men were drunk and stole the wrong fucking crate. So instead of motorcycles, they wound up with a ton of guns. Just happened upon, you know, 25 Lewis machine guns, 10,000 rounds of ammo, 50 rifles, 200 pistols. You know, instead of motorcycles, we got we got a shitload of uh, ammunition. That's fine. Yeah. So Tommy and his forward-thinking, quick-witted brain turns this into a bit of an opportunity for himself. So instead of those guns headed to Libya, they're sitting in Small Heath. So we learn that Tommy has them with Charlie Strong, who is the brother of the Shelby's mom, so the uncle to the Shelby clan. And then we meet good old Curly. Gotta love Curly. Curly's one of those loyal, reliable workers who might be a little bit off, but you always know he's going to have your back. And right there in that church... Thomas Shelby decides to be more than a bookmaker, more than a robber, more than a fighting man. And Josh, we finally have our main plot to this fucking great show. Great fucking show. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a trend. We're going to be, you know, dropping a little fucks, a lot of bloodies, you know, a lot of copas. So uh, just, just get ready. We're about to strap in. I'll tell you right now, this is the first moment of the show that I realized that this might have the chance to jump into the prestige television ranks that a lot of people talk about with, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and different shows like that because little gypsy parts, little things of the show that weren't doesn't necessarily get noticed right away, but on rewatches, I couldn't help but notice the fact that Charlie Strong can't move the contraband under a full moon, so they have to wait three days. And there's going to be a lot more little gypsy things or just little added touches throughout this season that obviously, you know, we're going to wait for, keep our tongue in our cheek, and then talk about it on every single episode. We're going to be posting one episode for all six of the first season episodes as, you know, Josh and I continue to churn them out. Josh is going to try to get caught up as fast as possible. And now we learn about Tommy's parents. First mention of Tommy's parents comes from his dad's sister, Polly. So Charlie Strong, who runs that little waterside farm or whatever you want to call it with the crates, that's Tommy's mom's sister. And then Polly, because she has the name Shelby, is Tommy's dad's sister. So Polly says that his dad had a devilment and his mom had common sense. And Tommy's got a little bit of both. And she could see them fighting on one side of his shoulder 
like the devil and the angel. And Polly obviously wants his mom to win. But I'm not sure that his mom did win because Tommy lied to Polly about throwing away the guns. Instead, he's got some uh, he's got some ideas, Josh. Yeah, you know, Tommy's running into these dilemmas where he, you know, because he's such a, he, he is really about the family. He's about the Shelby name. He's about the family. He loves every, every member of his family equally, but he also is really thinking about the betterment of the business at all times. So sometimes he's quick on his feet and using judgment, and he's always running into these moral dilemmas, whether or not to tell the truth, whether or not to, to spill the beans, and he decides to, to hold it, and we'll see why. So my favorite part about TV shows, and it's what Game of Thrones did so well, and it's why it was my favorite show for so long, but now that it's off air, I'd say Peaky Blinders is my favorite show. But the the best thing that they do is the plot developments and the webbing of plots, how you can just throw things away and you can jump from one character to the other and have them ride their own storyline. And I love it so much, and this show does such a fantastic job because we go right into another web of this plot, learning about Ada and Freddy's relationship. Now, Ada's the sister of Arthur and Tommy and Finn and John. She's sexually active. She's definitely a Shelby because you can just see it in her eyes. You can hear it the way she talks to her love interest, Freddie Thorne, all the while hiding from her brothers because she knows how powerful they are and how much they don't like the communist Freddie. Now, this is a funny part. Freddie calls Ada the only princess of the royal family of the kingdom of Small Heath. Speaking of Game of Thrones, that's, like a, that's a very Game of Thrones title. And I just think about how awesome this plot would be. Imagine Peaky Blinders set in the Renaissance time because they talk about the princess and then he calls himself a frog. And it's just like the fairy tale we all read when we were growing up. Yeah, you know, just another example of something dropped in there that, you know, just holds weight. You know, little little one-liners, you know, he's he's a communist frog, the royal family, kingdom of small heath, you know, just, just little, little jabs left and right. And another example of, of kind of understanding the struggle between Arthur and Tommy. And you, you can kind of tell Arthur, you know, thinks that Tommy is entitled a little bit, you know, that he maybe, maybe is not deserving of such a big crown and such a big name. And that the people like Arthur out there, are the ones that are, are working hard and who are deserving. And so he kind of sees that in Ada, that Ada doesn't have the usual characteristics of a Shelby. So we'll uh, learn more down that line. Yeah. I just like to know and learn there that it's clear that Ada, you talk about entitlement, they call her a princess. And imagine being able to carry your weight around a small town like Birmingham, like Small Heath, knowing that you are untouchable because you are the Shelby girl. And that's kind of what Ada is. That's probably why she went after the one guy that Tommy would disapprove of because she doesn't have a dad anymore. So, you know, she's got father figures as her brothers, but that's going to be, that's an interesting one that we'll see play out even in this episode as it continues to go on. But you know what? We cannot delay this anymore. The next scene is when it happens, Josh. It happens. The music changes, and we see an Irish green outfit popping through the ash. And that's something that they do phenomenally. The filmmaking, the directing, this was directed by Otto Bathurst. And it's when you see, whether it's Ada or Polly or here Grace walking in the streets of Birmingham, they stick out immediately. And this is when we meet Grace. Grace, Grace, Grace. What, what can I say, Daniel? I think that right, 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 right. When I saw Grace, I, I said something, but which, 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 which we won't share on on air. But Grace caught my eye. I think I might have done a quadruple take. Grace is the one. Annabelle Wallace, and she's kind of blowing up. She was in that movie Tag with uh, Ed Helms and and all those oh, yeah. the cast, and 
all those characters. Jeremy Renner, I remember, was in that. And then she's just she's been in this TV show on Showtime about Roger Ailes, the creator of Fox News, and she's done a great job. I've been watching that. It's called The Loudest Voice. So Annabelle Wallace, congratulations for being gorgeous. Because we get to the best scene of the episode, in my opinion, when Grace is denied the barmaid job for her own good from Harry, the owner of the garrison. Yep. Yeah, and Harry, you know, kept on emphasizing, you're too pretty, you're too pretty. Yeah, I, th- I think about three or four times, and Grace is very persistent. And you can't help but notice the thick, thick Irish accent from Grace. And kind of just, you know, also setting the differences between the people of Birmingham and also the, the Irish influence that is coming into here. Significant and, and symbolic and synthesized with people coming from Belfast. So just kind of something to take note. Grace says she's from Galway. I've been to Galway. I only went because Ed Sheeran wrote a song about it, but I've been. It's a, it's a great town, a lot of fun bars. Great song. Yep, good song, Galway Girl. Grace is a Galway girl, according to her story, and it says that she worked in Dublin. She then sings, I wish I was in Carrick Fergus. I'm not going to sing because I don't hold a candle to Grace. And you also don't look as good as Grace, so, I mean. Right, luckily nobody can see me. It's the beauty of a podcast. The name of the song is Carrick Fergus, so that's easy. It's sung by the Dubliners, so it makes sense that she says she's, she's been working in Dublin. That's where she learned the song, and she gets the gig because Harry cannot say no to that voice. Another scene follows that's great because Inspector Campbell gets up on his high horse, almost literally, but he stands on a soapbox and delivers a remarkable monologue about how rotten the police department is, how much the men are filled with garbage, and how much that they are just not police officers in his eyes. They serve the Peaky Blinders. They don't serve the Crown. So I think it's amazing, Josh, how back then... These normal guys, because Inspector Campbell brings in these just ordinary dudes off the street, according to his flyer. They come in, they get sworn in, and they just start stomping the streets of Small Heath, trying to clean it up. Essentially, you could be a criminal, right? You could be a criminal, pick up this flyer, and then go and turn into a police officer. Yeah, I don't really think, uh, you know, Inspector Campbell is really too concerned with the background check, uh, you know, process of the application. So I don't really know uh, if these guys were vetted out, but Inspector Campbell. On a mission, you kind of see what kind of guy he is. He doesn't care. He has his he has his eyes set forward, and he's really after what he wants to get. So, this is also something right away that I noticed. Inspector Campbell, you know, with his thick, thick Irish accent, you know, giving his speech. So, really, really a powerful, powerful scene here. The first victim of Inspector Campbell's raids is poor old Arthur. He's showing off what power he still has left. Goes to the movie theater for a nice little threesome. A movie theater threesome, what many men wish for, but only Shelby's can turn into a reality. But just before the fun starts for Arthur, he's apprehended by these coppas, all while yelling, I'm Arthur fucking Shelby. Arthur fucking Shelby. Just like he's an NFL owner being arrested for prostitution or workplace misconduct. Haha, would you look at that? Arthur takes the beating like a champ he is, though, and we get the first meeting between the villain, or the antagonist in Inspector Campbell, and our main protagonist family. It's Arthur, though, and Inspector Campbell didn't realize the power shift that took place because Arthur is not the leader of the Peaky Blinders. He gets asked about the robbery, and Arthur genuinely doesn't know. So he gets beat up, he gets his thumb snapped, and Josh, I don't think Inspector Campbell's here to fook around. Yeah, and, you know, Arthur got brought into the, into the closet, you know, 
back to the closet, you know, three three guys around him, you, you know, Inspector Campbell's not fucking around. So, uh, yeah, right out the gate, Inspector Campbell means business. But, you know, another thing Arthur does not know, actually does not know what happened with the guns. And this is something that we're going to run into. The guns, the guns, the guns. We keep mentioning the guns. And we can't, we cannot emphasize how important these guns are. So we'll see what happens with that storyline. The garrison is now packed for the upcoming football game, including the defenders and the goalie. As uh, Harry tells to Grace, the goalie's up there in the back as well. And I love it. I love that so much as a diehard sports fan. I would love, imagine just like sharing a beer with like Ryan Fitzpatrick before he takes the field this upcoming season for the Dolphins. I mean, Fitzmagic looks like he's been putting 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 a few back, so I wouldn't be surprised if he's out at the uh, local bar, you know, putting them back. But yeah, uh, it was it was it was cool, you know. It probably did actually happen a lot in 1919. Um, it might still happen now in small towns. Definitely, you know, uh, Nick Kyrgios when uh, he was playing at the Wimbledon this year was playing a doll the next day and was putting back putting back brews at the pool. Uh, the night before, so still happens to today. Very authentic. So that's when Tommy meets Grace for the first time. He needs a bottle of rum. He doesn't ask for a bottle of rum. He says, I need a bottle of rum. He uses his secret window beside the bar, and right away, he asks her if he's a whore. A scene that, honestly, I had forgotten about. It, it's the first encounter between Tommy and Grace, and Tommy's just straight up, no filter, asking if she's a whore. Just right out the gate, again, Tommy... Are you a whole? And you see Grace taken aback. She kind of is just like, what? Who? who you, you think I'm a whore? And she doesn't really know about Birmingham. She doesn't know what's really, you know, going on there. And so she's taken aback and kind of see like a look on her face. Like, what did I just get myself into by stepping foot in that place? She also didn't know that he was the king of this town because Harry, the bar owner, then has to tell her that ever since Tommy came back from France, Tommy hasn't wanted anyone at all. But if he wanted her... Harry wouldn't have any say in it, so he makes that known quickly, and we find out that the bottle of rum is for Arthur, who's getting all fixed up from Ada the nurse, who's getting just railed by her brothers. Typical just brother bashing. You also got to think of the time period here, so, you know, very male-dominated atmosphere. Um, but, but Ada, but you see in the Shelby family, Ada and on pole, they don't, they don't just take it, you know, they'll dish it back to you. Yeah, Ada's got some fantastic one-liners as well. Inspector Campbell, it turns out, wants to hire the Peaky Blinders. Arthur thinks it's a good idea, but Tommy doesn't say a word, which means that it's not happening. Two brothers disagreeing, you know, just casual. Uh, you know, this was, you know, more of that power struggle, so Tommy doesn't agree, and so what Tommy says goes. Then we see that Grace has the entire bar singing with her. That is until the blinders show up. And every man in the garrison gets very quiet, trembles, turns to the side, just does not want to make eye contact, no more singing. And this is where we get our first longing gaze between the two because Grace does not stop singing. And Tommy is uh, Tommy smitten. And while the boys are busy, Ada's out to play. She finally gets a bed and, uh, and gets to have some fun with Freddie too, a little twosome scene. Yeah, you know, we, we see that relationship take off right away, and it's very significant, you know, kind of sneaking around Tommy's and Arthur's back, you know, doing it very, very secretly. And this is going to be something that we're going to see if it comes back to bite her or not, but we kind of see that they're in love. So I hope they're in love. I honestly can't tell because the entire scene, like the second after, even Ada says it, the second after his balls are empty, he's asking about politics because he's trying to find out what happened in the meeting. 
what's going on with all these coppas, especially the Irish, you know, guy that's coming to town because it confused me a little bit because I'm pretty sure that Inspector Campbell was Irish, but he works for England. Right. There's definitely a mixture of the cultures uh, in, in, in Birmingham. And they keep on talking about the IRA, which is the Irish Republican army. And then the last thing Josh that Freddie says is he's hopeful that him and Tommy can reunite and fight together again instead of each other. So at least one part of this argument is Tommy's doing because it doesn't look like Freddie wants to be angry at, at his old war buddy because we learn almost immediately how deep they were in the shit together because we get into some trippy stuff. Tommy goes through the long process of his opium preparation and inhalation because, uh, I mean, as someone who's never done opium, and honestly, that's the first time I've ever even seen it prepared, man, it looks like a lot of work, and uh, I didn't know it was opium. It, it took me maybe like a couple episodes before they I see him do it a couple times, and then I, I was like, okay, that's got to be opium. But you, we talked about this a little bit right off there. I texted you immediately, and I was like, oh my god, like, is he doing heroin right now? Because I'm pretty sure opium and heroin, I, I, I don't know, I'm not... A, I'm not a chemist. I googled it. They're in the same family. All right, they're, they're, they're in the same family, but it was a it was a long process. He was heating something up. It was it was it was pretty intense. I wasn't expecting you know a guy of Tommy's stature to be going into the heavy stuff, but you know that's just more symbolic of the PTSD, which we're, you're about to get into with Danny. Yeah, because once Tommy takes his long hit from his yardstick-looking pipe, I mean that thing. It's cool. They had a cool camera angle with just a fantastic job directing by Otto Bathurst because you could see the pipe come up and you could see how long it is, how far your, the camera is away from Tommy in bed. And uh, his hit works. We get his first war memory, which takes place in a cave with Freddy and Danny. So right away, we two of the main non-Shelby men that we've been introduced to are right there in that flashback. Someone gets stabbed. A lot of stuff is going on. Yelling is happening. Can't really tell who's getting stabbed. It looks like maybe Danny is either stabbing or getting stabbed. He's, he's yelling, you know, it's very PTSD-like, but I'm not 100% sure. And Josh, I don't think they even really want us to know what's all going on. Right, it's just another, you know, fill in, fill, fill in, the, fill in the blanks yourself kind of thing. Danny's triggered by something. He sees, he sees the Italian waiter, and he's triggered by, by an event that happened in, when he was fighting in France. So it just was going to – just emphasizing that struggle between the, war, the, the former war veterans – and how they're dealing with it in real life. Oh, bad, bad, bad scene there with Danny. He assaults the Italian waiter. Didn't really know what was going on. He stumbled into the wrong part of town, the Italian's area, sits down at the table. The waiter pulls a knife. Tommy gets crazy, stabs the man with his own knife, and it starts a bit of a, a race war, which, Josh, this is something huge. It's a plot line that some cable shows would drag out. And it would be a full season-length little argument here between the Italians and the Peaky Blinders. And it would get a little old. But you know what? Stephen Knight nips it in the bud. He has this as a mini side plot in episode one. It's incredible. If this was a, if this was a Game of Thrones type show, which was dragging out over years, 10 episodes, you know, over an hour long for each episode, I could see them dragging out a mini side plot like this, you know, having its own, you know, path. But Stephen Knight does a very, very, very good job of kind of explaining it in very, very short spurts, which is what I've been impressed with this whole first episode. Winston Churchill and Inspector Campbell then meet on a train, briefly talk about whether it's either the communists or the IRA Fenians. 
And that, you know, that's about it. A bit of a throwaway scene, but it's the fact that Winston Churchill does tell the inspector to hide everything, doesn't want anything going to court, and he wants him to dig deep holes if he does have to bury any bodies. So it's obvious there aren't going to be very flashy arrests, which is why the whole thing is is done very, very Midwest old times, where, you know, the cop can run into the bad guy and they could talk face to face because there's a respect there. And we'll, we'll touch into that a little bit more. Tommy decides to keep the guns, which we touched on earlier. Uncle Charlie is not happy about this. Neither is Aunt Polly. But Tommy wants to make the crown pay for the guns. So he gets asked by Charlie, is it another war you're looking for, Tommy? And here we go. We get our first namesake drop. The name of this podcast, by order of the Peaky Blinders. Tommy answers the question by saying the Tobacco Wharf, which is where he wants the guns being held. And then he says, by order of the Peaky Blinders. And Josh, I got goosebumps. You had kept on mentioning this slogan, which is the name of our podcast. And I kind of didn't know what you were talking about. And then, boom, Tommy drops it. And it's kind of like, you know, an exclamation point for something that he says. It's kind of, you know, let's set the plan in motion. Kind of, you know, execute the plan. It's kind of like the, it, it, it starts everything off. So this is, this was a, this is a great scene. And I, I, I love how Tommy Shelby always gets, you know, very, very, very direct questions and has a perfect way of, you know, not answering the question, but answering the question. And in a way that a good pilot has to be, the last 15 minutes were just bang, bang, bang. I mean, everything, shit just starts to hit the fan because another bombshell hits here where we don't even have 30 minutes to speculate on this gorgeous blonde from Ireland who's a barmaid who Tommy's interested in because right away we learn that she is an undercover agent with the crown as she goes to talk to Inspector Campbell. She meets with the inspector and tells him that Tommy, not Arthur, is the head of the family. He won two medals for gallantry in the war. There's clearly a little bit of a connection between the two, and we find out pretty soon that the inspector worked with Grace's dad. So Grace's dad was a cop, and that Grace's dad was murdered by an IRA Fenian so Grace might be a little biased against them as we move forward. Another thing to mention, you know, Grace and Inspector Campbell meeting at that, that art museum in front of that sculpture area and that pink and that, you know, the pink room. That's kind of their uh, their uh, meeting grounds. And I, I will have to say, Daniel, this 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 kind of crushed my, my hopes and dreams right out the gate. I didn't think Grace was was, was gonna be working against the Shelby's. I really thought that she she had good graces among her. I was shook. I was shook, and then I was unbelievably floored that they told us that in the first episode. You texted me when, right when I said, oh my God, Grace is working with the Copas, and you were like, I was so shook that they told us that you know, early in the episode. It could have been something that they waited until the end of the season to just drop on us, and it would have been a huge, huge, huge bomb dropped on us, but not questioning Stephen Knight and, and how he wants to execute the show. Right, right from the start, we see Grace working and what her intentions really are. It's great because it would have been cliche. You know, the love interest being a backstabber, at least we know it right away. And what is funny, I'll say real fast, where in Birmingham is there like an unbelievably fancy Leonardo da Vinci style like Michelangelo art museum? Because I thought that was hilarious. They had to have gone way out of small heath for that. Yeah, you know, there's got to be some transportation service going on here, you know. <laughs> Inspector Campbell and, uh, and and Grace took an Uber XL to the uh, to the nice art museum about an hour and a half away. You know, you know, back in this time, the, these cars are not moving too fast either. 
you know, so, you know, there's, of course, there's it's still a television show. We're not going to be the Game of Thrones loons out there who are nitpicking every single little bit of the show, but just something to know, pretty funny. Our last big scene has the Italians watching on as Tommy takes care of Danny himself. Instead of handing him over, we see the two brothers of the man that was murdered in cold blood, essentially, for no reason, and how many men feel. Danny comes out and says that he died over there anyway. His brains were left on the the battlegrounds. And Josh, for this man that I've literally seen on screen twice ever, I was I was close to tears. I was really sad for poor Danny Wisbang there as Tommy cocks his gun, utters a phrase. You know, we might learn more about it. It might be a poem. He says, in the bleak midwinter, and pulls the trigger. Tremendous job executing the scene. You can tell, you know, even though he knows that Danny has kind of lost it and he has this insane PTSD and he, there might not be any of him coming back, you can tell that he's really struggling with pulling that trigger. Charlie Murphy does a tremendous job. They zoom in on his face. You can kind of see his cheekbones, you know, tensing up a little bit and just phenomenal cinematic elements here of him pulling that trigger. Reciting that poem and you see Danny drop into the, into the front of the boat. That got me even on the rewatch. Because then the pilot ends with the news that, guess what? Monahan boy bloody won. Bloody won. And Tommy conjures up a plan almost instantly. It's almost like he didn't plan for him to win, but he knew that if he did win, he'd have this plan. Because now he lies it all out to his brothers. Now they're going to trick a bigger audience with that same trick. And I really loved, loved this scene as well. Because a lot of the first episode, Tommy is kind of very, very short with his responses. Very curt. You know, kind of dropping these in the bleak midwinter kind of like little lines. And here he kind of, you know, really explains his thoughts about how they're going to really make the money on these races and his, his, his longer scheme and his longer plan and how, you know, his brain is really churning, always thinking ahead, always thinking of the next and the next after that. So I thought this was a great way to end the episode to kind of see how his mind works. Yeah, Tommy's playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers because then he's going to have the horse win again, and then he's going to do the powder trick one more time where the whole town is betting on this magic horse, and he'll lose. And that is where we see the true visionary that Thomas Shelby is, and that closes out the first episode of Peaky Blinders. It's fantastic, except, wait, whoa, whoa, Tommy did not kill Danny. Danny is alive. He was fake killed by Tommy everyone's mind is blown because he pops up with uncle charlie charlie is gonna take danny to london to pull a job for the boss holy shit what a twist i mean right when i saw danny not get shot i guess where i thought he was shot i mean you you always kind of think oh you know he didn't actually shoot him like i knew he didn't shoot him no i i actually thought he shot him drop dead 100 i mean we kind of saw like when you saw Tommy pull the trigger, you kind of still like, okay, he shot him. But when I when I saw him sprout up, I was I was shook. I was shook. I mean, they they used fake blood somehow. I mean, you saw like blood come out. There's blood splattering. What what happened? And you know, he had some plan where he was, you know, faking shooting him with blood splattering. Well done. Golf clap to Tommy Shelby. So Danny is now a Peaky Blinder. The episode actually does end with Tommy lying to Polly once again, saying that it's done, he's done the right thing, and then he shares one last glance at the girl who sings and shines, and then the credits roll. And that 
is episode one, directed by Otto Bathurst, written by Stephen Knight, the man, the myth, the legend who created the show and the world we are obsessed with. Final thoughts of this episode, Josh. Such a great pilot. I cannot emphasize how great this pilot was. A lot of shows that have these deep plot lines use the first episode to set up all the storylines, but they don't actually progress at all. But this episode really progressed as fast as it possibly could, and it got me hooked out the gate. You texted me. I was texting you right after, and I immediately watched episode two. I had to because... And that's the that's thing with this show is a lot of, oh, my God, I need to watch the next episode. Oh, my God, I need to watch the next episode, which, you know, being from the States and, and, and usually watching on Netflix kind of have that luxury. But if you're watching on BBC and you have those cliffhangers going to the next week, oof, it's rough. Now, don't worry, guys. We will be talking about that second episode soon. So we'll be posting it any day now. Hit that subscribe button, whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor. If you do want to find any of our postings, you can find us on facebook.com slash Peaky Podcast or on Twitter at By Order of Peaky. You can send your feedback to us. What did you think about that first episode? What do you have to say about the following? Do you have any predictions if you're watching it for the first time? You can email us at B-O-O-T, By Order of the B-O-O-T, Peaky Blinders at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Daniel Gilman. Josh, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Josh Levy 18 and that's L-E-V-E-Y. So at Josh Levy 18 Give us a follow, guys. Absolutely. Daniel Gilman, G-I-L-L-M-A-N. And for all the people that I recommended this show to, I'm hoping that they start it right now so they can listen to us and they can catch up for season five. That's what we are here for you. We're going to binge so you don't have to, so you can catch up while you're on your drive to work, while you're on the train to your vacation, whatever you're on. You can listen to us, Josh and Daniel, always giving you the action. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk again soon.